Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. And we commenced last Lord's Day uh, this new series looking at the opening 11 chapters of Genesis, this primordial, primeval history, uh, beginning with creation of the foundation of all things. And today we're going to uh, pick up at Genesis 1 verse 6, and I'm going to read through to verse 25. And so let me invite you as you're able, once again, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 1, beginning in verse 6, wherein Moses uh, faithfully records, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle, and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. May God bless today once again the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we stand before the open pages of the Bible, uh, we ask for illumination. We ask that you would send thy light by thy spirit, open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our minds and hearts to receive thy truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. So again, we started this new series last Lord's Day on the primeval or the primordial history as recorded here by Moses in the opening chapters of Genesis. And this account uh, began 
with God's creation of heaven and earth, the cosmos, the universe. And we looked at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that iconic phrasing of these things. We noted how verse 1 is really an account of all creation. It's really the caption or title for this creation narrative. But as Calvin pointed out, the Bible does not say that the world was made in a moment of time. God could have done it that way. But instead, God was pleased, as it's revealed here in the Scriptures, to to work out the, the making of this world over the space of six days. As our Baptist Catechism teaches in question 12, what is the work of creation? And it answers, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And so we believe in a six day creation because this is what is revealed in Genesis 1. And Calvin says God made the world in the space of six days rather than in a mere moment of time, which he might have done. He's all powerful. He can do as he pleases. But he did so, Calvin suggests, perhaps because he knew that this would help men better to appreciate his power and his glory because they might have rushed too quickly over a creation made in but a moment. We saw last time the creation of light On the first day, if you look back at verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God uh, uh, creates by the fiat power of his word. And on that first day also, as we saw in verse 4, he divided the light from the darkness. And this was the creation work of the first day. It says in verse 5, in the evening and the morning were the first day. And so now we're going to move forward, God willing, and we're going to look at the next five days, days two through six of the work of creation here. And there's a question that arises from the start that we might need to address, and that is the question of how this account is to be properly understood. Some have suggested that this account not be taken in a literal historical manner, to see it as a historical narrative. But instead, they have suggested that this should be seen as something that is poetical, that it's figurative, that it's a symbolic narrative. Maybe you've heard someone suggest before this way of understanding the creation account, and uh, they'll even sometimes vehemently object to a historical understanding of the text. In recent uh, days, uh, the the Canadian uh, educator philosopher uh, Jordan Peterson has gained a lot of popularity by giving a Jungian uh, uh, psychological interpretation to uh, the Genesis account. And a lot of people listen to him don't even realize that that it's really Jungian philosophy and this uh, metaphorical interpretation and and not speaking of anything as as if it's an actual historical event and millions have listened to him and been influenced by his interpretation. And yet we would insist that that's a misreading of the passage, that it must be read as a historical account, a historical narrative. One of the godly commentaries that I read offered at least four reasons as to why Genesis 1 should not be taken as poetry, but should instead be received as a historical narrative. And so let me do just a little bit of teaching, if I may, and just review these four reasons that he gave as to why This account should be read as a historical narrative. First, he said, he said there is a literary device in Hebrew historical narrative. And again, we're going to get a little nerdy here, grammar nerdy here. It's called the Vav consecutive plus the imperfect. Vav in Hebrew is the conjunction and. 
And so it's the vav consecutive, an and that's repeated, a conjunction that's repeated over and over, plus a verb that's in the imperfect tense, or we would call it the past tense. And so in English, it would be something like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. That's the way in the Hebrew language you convey a historical narrative. Turn over and read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and you'll see this, this form of telling historical narrative. And look, for example, at verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And just keep, let your eye just keep going down the line. It's the the Vav consecutive with the imperfect verb over and over again. This is uh, the pattern of historical narrative. And the commentator adds, this pattern is almost non-existent in Hebrew poetry. Second of four reasons, he says Genesis 1 contains little or no indication of figurative language. There are no tropes, there are no symbols, there are no metaphors. We do not read here in Genesis 1, God is like a great potter. The earth is like a piece, a lump of clay. And there's this figurative, symbolic thing going on. We know what poetry is, and there is inspired poetry in the Bible. Look at the Psalms, many poetic images, but we just don't find that here. Third, he said, the most basic common feature of Hebrew poetry is what he calls line parallelism. And we've talked about this a number of times. We've gone through something like the Psalms or the Proverbs. We know that the way the Hebrews did poetry was not through rhyming the way we typically do English poetry, but they did it through parallelism. They would have a line, the line states something, and then the second line repeats it or expands upon it. You see this over and over again, like in the Psalms. Think about Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. A line, and then a parallel line. And we don't see this in Genesis 1. It's not the typical poetic writing. Fourthly, this scholar says, some have suggested that the, the repetitions which appear in Genesis 1 indicate poetry. And there are many things that are repeated. We're going to call attention to some of that today. The statement, and it was so. Or God's declaration that what he had made was good. Or at the end of each day, and the evening and the morning were the first day, or the second day, or the third day, etc. Some have said, well, that's, that must be poetry. But this scholar points out that such repetition is not necessarily a sign of poetry. In fact, it's more a sign of Hebrew historical narrative. If you've ever read through the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, you know there's a lot of repetition, particularly in the narratives that describe things. It repeats sometimes the same thing over and over and again. And even within Genesis, later on, the scholar pointed out, there's a phrase, now these are the generations. We're simply listing names of people and so forth. And it's there in Genesis 10.1, Genesis 11.10, Genesis 11.27, Genesis 25.12, Genesis 25.19, Genesis 36.1, Genesis 37.2. And all that's in parts of Genesis that are undisputed as being historical narrative, telling about the patriarchs and so forth. So, the point is, Genesis 1 is not poetry. It is a historical narrative. And this is the way we should read it if we are going to, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly divide the word of truth. We accept this history because we believe in an all-powerful and sovereign God who can do as he pleases. We believe this history because we have faith in him and we have faith in his word as infallible. I'm still, I'm still meditating on that verse I called to your attention last week. I, 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 all the times I've read through the Bible and thought about creation, 
I, I, it, it never has come to my attention as it has in the past couple of weeks. Hebrews 11.3 from the Faith Hall of Fame. Through faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. It's a matter of, it's an article of faith. And in fact, it's, it's, it's put there in our confessions of faith, and in our catechism, that God made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Get away from my Genesis 1, Mr. Peterson. It's historical narrative and you're missing the point if you try to apply Jung to it. Well, um, this means for us that the six days of creation are not meant to be taken as metaphorical references to long periods of time. Have you heard that before, the so-called day-age theory? For those who say, well, I can harmonize my, my evolutionary views with believing the Bible. And these days are just long periods of time. No, uh, they're used in, in the ordinary way. Day here means a 24-hour day. Just as the term, in fact, is used in verse 14 of Genesis 1, which describes the creation of time. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let me just say that I think in the end, it is actually a very liberating thing to trust in the Lord. It's a very liberating thing to accept his word without having to trouble oneself with the invention of clever explanations to get around the obvious meaning of things. You see, the, the worldling looks at us and says, oh, so narrow-minded, so imprisoned. No, liberated, free, free to believe God's word, free to trust in God and not lean in my own understanding. And so it's actually a liberating thing. Well, with that introductory teaching, let's turn now and let's see if we can walk through this narrative of these six days of creation. And we already last time looked at day one, just to remind us once again, uh, if we look back at verse three, God said, let there be light and there was light. God created by the fiat power of his own word, the, the light, and this was a light that was not a light that emanated from a natural source. Uh, it is a supernatural work of God. Uh, God then divides the light from the darkness and establishes with no sun moon, and moon having been made the first day because he's God and he can. And so we commence now with day two, which is described in verses six through eight. And the key event that is described here is the making of what is called in the English translation, the firmament, or what God himself will call in verse eight, heaven. In Hebrew, it's literally a plural, so it's the heavens. This is not heaven as the dwelling place of God, but the earthly heavens, the expanse of sky that is above us. And so it begins in verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And once again, as in verse 3, we see God acting by the fiat power of his word. God the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is issuing his sovereign decrees and command. He spoke light into existence. Now he speaks the firmament into existence. Calvin described the firmament as an empty space around the circumference of the earth that heaven and earth may not be mixed together. 
The Hebrew term for the firmament is rakia. The root for this noun comes from a Hebrew verb that means to beat out, to stamp, or to spread out by hammering. And so uh, it's using the the image of of metalworking. God like a great metalworker who beats out the firmament, uh, this, this space, uh, and he sets it into place within his creation. There is mention there at the end of verse 6 of this being made in the midst of the waters and with God dividing waters from waters. If we go back for a second and look at verse 2, remember we talked then about how in verse 1 it's sort of a, a description of the ex nihilo, the out of nothing creation. God makes basically Uh, the building blocks of the world. These things are not pre-existing matter. This is where Christianity is different from paganism, which believes in the pre-existence of these materials in the world. But in the Bible, it says God makes them out of nothing. But then it explains how God takes these materials that are sort of like the the building blocks to build the world. And they're described, remember in verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void. Remember I, I mentioned the Hebrew term, the tohu wabohu. It's all tohu wabohu. It's without appearance. It's without, it's without form. It's void. And it says there, darkness was upon the face of the deep. The waters are there. God has made by the fiat power of his word these waters. He has, he's made this out of nothing. And we even uh, read, did we not, in verse 2 about how the spirit of God was moving upon the face of the waters. And now God is in the, is in the midst of these waters placing the firmament, dividing waters from waters. And so uh, he's also uh, dividing these things. Division is a part of the work of creation. We saw earlier how he had divided the light from the darkness, and now he's dividing water from water to place within it uh, this firmament. In verse 7, there is now a restatement of this. Look at verse 7. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. The verb that is used here in verse 7 for God made in Hebrew is asa. It's not the the word bara that was used in verse 1 to talk about the the ex nihilo creation, but it's now him using these things that he has called into existence, like these waters, to to place their hammer out there, the firmament. And uh, you might notice also that it says right at the very end in verse 7, just a little phrase, your, your eye can go over, it's one of those throwaway phrases, It's the phrase, and it was so. And it was so. If you look throughout the rest of this narrative, you're going to see that this little statement is made repeatedly. Uh, Look at the end of verse 9. It says, and it was so. Look at the end of verse 11. And it was so. At the end of verse 15. And it was so. At the end of verse 24, and it was so. At the end of verse 30, and it was so. And if you go back and think for a second, it's not exactly the same word, but it's, it's a very similar construction in Hebrew. At, at, at verse 3, after he makes the light, it says, and there was light. And in fact, if you take that that first occasion in verse 3 alongside the others, now in verses 7, 9, 11, 15, 24, and 30, that means seven times in Genesis 1 that Moses says, and it was so. Dennis and I were talking about things mentioned seven times. Uh, The Holy Spirit was at work, right? Crafting this. Seven is is the number of completion, of fullness, of wholeness. And it was so. God is making the world according to his perfect design, according to his perfect plan. And so that little statement is not a throwaway. That statement is also a reminder of God's faithfulness. He said, let this happen, and it was so. 
It's a reminder that, that what God declares, he works out or he actualizes. We might say what he promises, he fulfills. We've all known people who have made promises to us but have not kept them. And if we're honest, we also know that we have sometimes made promises and not kept them. But that little phrase there in verse 7, and it was so, is a reminder that though men may be faithless, God is always faithful. We can eventually apply the and it was so to everything that he tells us. Everything that he has ever told us. In the end, it will be declared, and it was so. And it was so. In verse 8, then, we have God naming, naming the firmament. And we talked about this before because there was the, the, the naming of things that we, we previously had noticed uh, within this uh, narrative. Uh, and the naming of something is... Uh, the expression of authority over it. I mentioned last week that when you have children, uh, if you're a parent, you get the privilege and the authority to name your children. They may grow up and not like their names later on. They may not like them with their children and come to see, hey, my, my parents, the older I get, my parents get wiser and wiser. Maybe the name has some significance. But but God names the things that he has made. This is his stamp of, of ownership upon it. It says in verse 8, And God called the firmament heaven. Again, it's not the, this doesn't mean the, the, the place where God abides, that special place, but it's talking about, again, the skies above us, this, the beautiful skies that he has made. And then it proceeds to say in verse 8, And the evening and the morning were the second day. So we have an end here to the second day of creation. Let's move on now to the third day. Look at verses 9 through 13. It also begins with an expression of the fiat power of God's word. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Well, talk about things that are repeated. And God said. How many times is that repeated in the narrative? It's there in verse 3, verse 6, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26, verse 29. Nine times, not seven. If I counted correctly, I might have missed one. So I'm sure somebody will tell me later. Once again... As in the previous mentions in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, or verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. God speaking here, what this is showing to us, demonstrating to us, is the power of God's word, the power of God's speech. He creates through his spoken word. This makes significance the way John opens. We talked about this last week. In the beginning was the word, the logos. We've got a parallel between the first creation and the new creation, the spiritual creation. He speaks and the world comes into existence. And what does he do later to save sinful men? He speaks to their hearts and changes them. As Paul will put it in Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Two actions are described in verse 9. There is the gathering first of the waters under the firmament as it puts it into one place. And secondly, there is the appearance of the dry land. And again, we have the fulfillment statement and it was so. And we have naming also, God, God calling uh, these things that he's created by the names and terms he has given to them. In verse 10, again, demonstrating his sovereignty, mastery, authority over them. And God called the dry land earth. Uh, you can see that land there, if you have the authorized version or maybe the New King James Version, that land there is in italic. 
And that's telling you that, that there's not a Hebrew word there. It's being supplied by the translator. The word there is actually just dry, dry thing. And God called the dry thing that he had made the earth or the Eretz in Hebrew, the land. Um, and this term for a dry thing is the same term that's used in Exodus 14 when it describes how the Israelites, when they come out of bondage in Egypt, when the Red Sea parts, how they walk through on dry ground. And now he takes the dry thing, calls it the earth, the waters he calls the seas. And here's this, this amazing account of God making the seas and the oceans. Anybody been to the ocean this summer and gone swimming in the Atlantic or something like that, gone down to uh, the Outer Banks or uh, somewhere and, and gone swimming, or maybe you've been in, at a lake or a pond somewhere. Uh, God made the waters, and he made the division between the land and the waters. It's interesting. This is something that comes up in the remainder of Scripture as a sign of God's sovereignty and power. For example, in Jeremiah 5, there's a time when Jeremiah is rebuking the Israelites for their disobedience. And he says in Jeremiah 5, 21, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bounds of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. Have you ever thought that, that God is holding back the seas right now, keeping them in their boundaries? Every once in a while, when there's a, when there's a limited flood or a typhoon, remember that one from years ago, I guess in Indonesia, we see a little bit of what it might be like if God would withdraw for a moment the division of land and sea. And Jeremiah was saying, you foolish people, you're messing with the God who made the, 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 the firmament, who made the land, who made the sea. We see this also in the book of Job when God comes down and speaks from the whirlwind to Job in Job 38 verse 8. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? The Lord is asking Job, where were you, O man, when at creation I made the distinction between land and sea? Of course, the world will know what it is like. Later on, we'll see in Genesis when God will allow the flood to come in the days of Noah. It's interesting, Calvin in his commentary, reflecting on this in his normal cheery way. He said, oh, when you go out and you, you're walking about and you, you look up into the firmament, you look up and you see the clouds. Oh, beautiful clouds, you know. This looks like an animal. That one looks like a dog or a kitten or whatever. Cheery old Calvin said, when you see those clouds, just remember that God could allow those clouds to rain down and swallow you up at any moment, as he did in the days of the flood. But he said division. And he's being gracious and merciful by giving you the ability to live your life. He's creating, he's creating, what does he do? He's creating an, an environment, a theater for, for his creation to live, for us to live. And so think about that next time you see the clouds, that cheery thought. <laughs> we have then in verse 10, the affirmation of God's goodness. At the very end, look at verse 10. And God saw that it was good. We noted the first appearance of this uh, note of goodness in, in verse 4 on day 1 with the creation of light. And this is repeated uh, in uh, not only in verse 10, but in verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31. How many times, Dennis pointed out this out to me last Sunday after his service, 
seven times. Seven times there's a mention of the goodness of creation in Genesis 1. We might pause here and just note the establishment of these three basic environments that God has made for our world, this world we live in, the world we know as human beings here on this planet. He's created the heavens, he's created the earth, and he's created the seas. One commentator called these the fundamental construction of the cosmos. This is what he's made. And then from this point on, this is sort of a turning point here, in the midst of day three, God begins then to fill these three habitats or these three environments that he has created, this world in which we live. And so he first begins to fill the earth with what we could call plant life and vegetation. This starts in verse 11. This is still in the midst of day three. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And so, again, this is the Lord filling the earth with plant life, vegetation, grass as we know it. What a lush, wonderful place this earth is. And one of the interesting things about this is we've seen in this account so far what we could call the special works of God's creation, his special providences as he makes things ex nihilo. But in this case, for one of the first times, we're seeing God establishing what we could call an ordinary or general work of providence because he places these plants and he doesn't do ex nihilo creation of them over and over again, but he puts within these things the ability to regenerate and reproduce themselves. As one commentator put it, God empowers the earth with a generative capacity. Notice also the phrase in verse 11 when it talks about the the fruit tree yielding its fruit after its kind, after its kind. This phrase also appears 10 times in Genesis 1. Also appears in addition to verse 11 in verse 12, verse 21, verse 24, verse 25, and a couple of those twice it appears. Grass seed makes grass, herb Herbs make herbs, and fruit trees yield fruit. And what this tells us is there's an orderliness to creation. These things reproduce themselves after their own kind. It's it's actually kind of an interesting thing to think about. If you go out to your house and you go to your rose bush, do you expect you're going to be able to pick a pear off the rose bush? No. No. You get roses off the rose bush. Do you go to your apple trees and say, hmm, I want to see if I can get a good potato here today? No, you get, you get apples from apple trees. What a crazy mixed up world it would be if the plants just all just produce things willy-nilly. That's, that's part of the wisdom of God. How do these things know what to produce after all? Scientists can study it. They can can observe how it works, but they can't tell you why it works. No, they can't. They can't explain it. It's the special providential work of God putting generative powers in things that he has made. It's amazing, really. It's truly amazing what God has done. Things we just take for granted. Verse 12 is sort of an extended explanation of of what took place. And the earth brought forth grass and the herb yielding seed after its kind and the tree yielding fruit uh, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And again, we get the affirmation at the end of verse 12. And God saw that it was good. And here it comes to the end of the third day, verse 13, in the evening and the morning were the third day. Let's move on now to day four. In day four, Moses tells us that this fourth day was given to filling the firmament with the lights, the natural lights, 
that would likewise provide a natural or ordinary means to divide the day from the night. See, back on day one, he had done it in a supernatural manner to start things off, let there be light. But now, just as he's given this ordinary process to the the reproduction of these plants and vegetation, so he does with the production of light by natural or ordinary means within the firmament. And so in verse 14 it says, And God said, again, his fiat power of his word, power of his word, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. We see here that God is providing markers for his creation to measure the passage of time so that later men will be able to measure the length of their days and the passing of history and to record it and to record the works of God in history. Now this is written, obviously, and describes what describes the things that that happened before Genesis 3, obviously, before the fall into sin. But God in his wisdom knew there would come a time when when man would fall and he would know these limitations. And think about how God's creation of time and our ability to measure it is given with a spiritual purpose for us. We'll see this later on in Psalm 90. When the psalmist were right, Psalm 90, verse 10, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. We live 70 years. If by reason of strength there are fourscore years, we might live to 80 or beyond. Yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. For that to work, there had to be the establishment of time and the measuring of days and seasons and years. In verse 15, Moses notes that the purpose of these lights was to enlighten the earth. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so, he Quotes, God is saying these lights are for the purposes of providing light upon the earth, and he declares it was so. Regarding that that little statement, and it was so, if I could just say something else about that, one commentator pointed out that every time you see and it was so, what it's telling you is that God said this to happen and it immediately took place. There was no, again, no day-age theory, no gaps No room for supposed evolution. God speaks and it happens. It is. Three lights are mentioned as we get a further explanation in verse 16. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. The greater light here is obviously a reference to the sun. The lesser light to rule the night is a reference to the moon. And then there's the final reference to the stars. God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. And I know that the skeptic is going to be out there and he's going to say, wait a second, stars are larger and brighter than the moon and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Remember, all this is being given in accommodation to men. This is the way we see things from our perspective on earth and God would know that, Right? The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light the moon to rule the night, the stars. So it's an accommodation to us. God then set these things up, indeed, as he had spoken, verse 17, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, verse 18, and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. What do we not read here? There is no mention here of astrology. There is no mention of these things being given so that you can read them and know your future and know how, you know, what, when were you born and under what star and this, that, or the other thing. They're there for a very practical purpose to give light. There's no occultism here. And this is what, this is what really been strange 
Because if you lived in the, at the time Moses did, there were all these pagans. And they looked up at the stars like, oh, we got to find this astrology and this, that, or the other thing. They also worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. And here is Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, God made these things and they're his creation made for a purpose. You don't worship them, but who do you worship? The creator, the God who made them. Think about unbelieving men, men like the one mentioned in Psalm 53:1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Men who walk around every day denying the Lord, suppressing the knowledge of him and unrighteousness. And what then do we sometimes hear from these people? They complain, if only he would give me a sign, I would believe in him. If only he would give me a tangible sign of his existence. And they complain about this as they walk around looking at their watches, reading their digital clocks, glancing at their calendars, digital or paper, and ignoring the creation's witness to them every day. Look up at the sun, at the moon, at the stars. Wonder at the majesty of God. Remember a few years ago, a friend who was doing a postdoctoral degree in astronomy at UVA invited us over to his house and he had a, a more souped up telescope than you would ordinarily find that someone had and we were able to just watch through his telescope and he knew all about it, was explaining it to us and um, how can the mind fathom what God has made and there are all these signs around us and men are walking around I don't believe he's there why doesn't he give me a sign I think it was Calvin who said, if a lunatic scribbles all his darkness on the wall of his cell in the asylum, it doesn't mean the sun hasn't risen. All these things are shouting out to us, God is, God is, God is. The fourth day comes to an end, verse 19, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Let's move quickly then to day five. In day 5, in verses 20 through 23, God fills the seas and the heavens with creatures, with moving or living creatures, as they're described in verse 20. Sentient and insentient. He creates the animals, the beasts of the sea and of the sky. He creates all the sea creatures and all the birds of the air. Look at verse 20. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth and open firmament of heaven. And then it goes into greater detail then about the, the creation of uh, these specific animals. And by the way, in verse 21, we have the, the verb bara again, and God created, like in verse 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The great whales, the large sea creatures, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. We have here everything being made from the whale to the shrimp, from the eagle to the canary. And note, although there's no mention of the fowl, uh, obviously there is intended their habitation on the land for nesting and foraging. And then something new is added in verse 22, as it says, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let fowl multiply in the earth. It's new here in that these beings are blessed by God. And what we're seeing is a, 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 a gradation of creation. These Sentient creatures at least have some capacities beyond the inanimate creation that he has made. And so it's fitting for God to bless them as Christ shares beatitudes on his disciples in Matthew 5. God here has a beatitude upon these creatures. He commands them, first, be fruitful, increase, multiply, he says, Fill the waters and the skies. And of course, this is anticipating what he's going to say to man. How men are to 
be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But he says this first to these lesser creatures. And with that, we have uh, the end uh, described of the fifth day, verse 23. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Let's move on to the sixth day. And we're only going to do part of it because we're going to talk about the creation of man, God willing, next Sunday. With the special creation of man. But let's just look briefly at how the sixth day of creation begins. And really, we could say, you know, everything's been heading toward this point. Everything's heading toward the point of God creating human beings as his image bearers. But it begins first with the creation of creatures uh, who will fill the dry land. We've already seen the creatures who fill the, the habitat of the firmament, the winged creatures, the, the, the habitat of the sea, but now the, the habitat of the land. And... Uh, we see in verse 24, and God said that the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. Now you'll notice here a couple things. First of all, notice that Moses mentions here in God's words as he faithfully records them, Three representative creatures. The first one is translated as the cattle. This is interesting. In Hebrew, the word is behema. It's the root for our word behemoth. And most interpreters think it's a reference to a four-footed animal. And it was often referred to, to cattle, and so that, that seemed to be a, a good word to use here for, the, for the, the translators. Some believe this is a reference to God making those animals that we refer to as domesticated animals, of which the cow would be a representative. My dad, some of you know, grew up on a dairy farm in North Carolina, and um, his whole life he had a love of cows. He loved cows, and I, I, I've never been around cows much, but my dad loved them. And, and when I was growing up, wherever we lived, my dad was a pastor. Very often, we would have a cow uh, in the backyard. And uh, it's an amazing animal, isn't it? What you get from that animal is truly amazing. My dad would always, he'd go through, a, he, he would always pass by a pasture and he would say, look at those horses. Tearing the grass up from, from the root. Think about what the cow does. It chomps off the grass, leaves it there, then fertilizes it. What a wonderful animal the cow is. God made cows. They taste good, too. God made cows. They milk, butter. Think about the cow. What a blessing. What a blessing they are. That's the first type of animal that he mentions. And then he mentions creeping things. We can think of everything from the titmouse to the caterpillar to the lizard to the flea. Each serves its own respective role in the divine ecology. And then last, the beasts of the earth. Some think this is a reference to what we would call wild animals, undomesticated animals. Everything from the hippo to the kangaroo to the lion. And notice also that he makes these things like he did the, the plants and the vegetation so that they would, by ordinary providence, reproduce. They have a regenerative, regenerative capacity after their own kind. And when you think about it, there, there's some wonderful normativity to that also, right? So that we don't expect, you know, a kitten is going to have an alligator, Right? There's a, there's a, but why is that? Can the scientists really explain that? No. God put that regenerative capacity within these creatures. Well, we go on and look for a minute at verse 25, which basically just tells us the fulfillment of how it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. It's interesting, this, this description of the making of these animals. And 
Um, I'm not as far gone as some people. Uh, my family criticizes me sometimes. They say I'm kind of indifferent to animals. I sort of see pets as animals and not as people. But I can understand how even in this description, there's something in this that tells us why perhaps that we have a natural and innate fascination with these creatures that God has made. These creatures he's made to fill out the world. There, we, we, he's going to make men on the sixth day too. And he's going to give dominion to these men over these creatures. And the Lord is meant for us to have a special connection with them. And this will persist even after Genesis 3, even after the fall. This is why Solomon will write in Proverbs 12.10, A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. This is why, you know, for all those left-wing people who are you know, PETA folk or whatever, they don't understand that it was Christians who, stored, who started the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Because we have a special connection with them. God has given us a special stewardship over them. And we'll see more about that, God willing, next time. Well, we've looked, can you believe, we looked through five more days of creation. We've got a We've got yet more to go on day six. God willing, we'll look at next week. Hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you've already made connections. But let me just point to a couple before we leave. A couple lessons we might learn. First of all, we can look today with thankfulness at the world which the Lord has made. Thankfulness and awe. Despite the fall of man into sin, it is still a good world and we should praise him for it. The creation itself is enough that the door should be bursting open today. And people should be coming in to praise God for what he has made. We will never be able to touch the bottom of all the intricacies of the world that is around us. It is indeed a school to teach us the power and the glory of God. Secondly, we are reminded, if I could just draw one thing, I want to go back to that little statement, and it was so. We're reminded in that little refrain about the faithfulness of God and that he always fulfills the promises and what he says he will do, he does. And we could apply that to many other things. We could apply it to things like when Christ said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again so that you will be with me. One day there will be an and it was so tacked onto that. Or when we read in, in Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose. I think there are probably many of us in here could already say, I remember a time when God said, and it was so. And if you're going through a difficulty now, there will be a time if you're in Christ where it will be pronounced, and it was so over you what about 1 Corinthians 10 13 there is no temptation come upon you except that which is common unto men God will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear unless he gives you a way to stand up under it and it was so one day there will be an and it was so tacked onto that for anybody going through special peculiar temptations third observation all these six days are leading to the creation of man which we'll see next week God willing and what was the eternal plan of salvation God created the world he made provisions for man even the provision that will come in the second person of the Godhead taking on flesh this is where it's all heading really in the end what the father thought 
The sun bought, the spirit wrought. And it's all coming and telling us about man made in God's image. And it's really pointing us to the time when God himself will be a man in Christ. And he'll go to a cross, he'll die for sinners, he'll be gloriously raised. He'll ascend to the Father's Son. He'll say, I'm coming again. And one day there will be an and it is so. And it was so. Tacked on to the end of it. Amen? Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word. And we give thee thanks for this testimony through thy servant Moses. To the creation, we confess our own blindness and ignorance and how we've taken for granted so much of this. But we give thee thanks for an opportunity like this to let it be, let it, let it be brought back to our memory of all the things we have to praise and thank thee for. So help us to do that the remainder of this day. It is your day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.